This morning, we continue in Romans chapter 8, and we'll be looking at verses 28 through 30. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Romans 8, beginning at verse 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would open up Your word to us, that Your word would be more precious to us than gold. And that our lives would be changed by it. And that in it, we might look and see the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We come this morning once again to what we have called the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. And we come here to what is often considered one of the greatest texts in the greatest chapter of the Bible. And so as I was studying it this week, I decided that I had to do something new. Something that I've never done in the pulpit before. Now if that scares you for a Presbyterian pastor to say that, it's okay. Because when I mentioned that to my wife, she gave me the look. And then when I texted my son, his immediate response was, Are you going to make the elders angry? I hope neither will be the case. But what I would like to do this morning is because this text is so grand, so majestic, so theologically rich, and yet so practical, is that we're going to break it up into part one and part two. I'm going to preach on it for two consecutive weeks. Now, if you think that's a lot, I need to remind you that the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached on these exact same verses, 17 sermons. So I'm not in that rarefied of air, but... What I would like to do is I'd like to look this morning, particularly at verse 28 and the practical pastoral implication of this text. And then next week we will look more at verses 29 and 30 and it will be more of a theological study that will build off of the practical and the pastoral. I also want you to notice that Paul puts the pastoral before he puts the theological because he's concerned about people. So what we will look at this morning is really point one. And if you like three points, there are three sub-points to point one. Point one is the promise of God. And we're going to look at first who the promise is for. Second, what the promise is. And then third, how we know the promise is true. And then Lord willing, next week we will move to the purpose of God and the perseverance of God. But let's begin then this morning with the promise of God and who the promise is for. Paul begins here in verse 28. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, at first glance, this promise seems completely unbelievable. How could everything in the world be good? Think about all the people in the world who are suffering. Think about all the evil that's in the world. Disease. Disasters. Yet this is a very straightforward statement. It's not a complex prophecy or a parable. It's not a passage filled with hard to interpret or understand imagery. But this passage is a testimony as to why it is important for us to look at the Bible carefully. Because what our text does not say is that everything is good. At first glance, it may seem that way. It does not say that everything is good for everyone. No, our text includes specific limitations that are important. This promise can only be claimed by those for whom it is intended. And Paul is emphatic in the way that he brings this about. He's emphatic in the very promise himself. Now, this is usually the place where I give you some insight to the Greek text, and I tell you it helps you to understand the emphasis. And the Greek text does, but the good news for all of us is that in this instance, our English translation does exactly the same thing. Do you notice that in verse 28, what comes first are those for whom the promise comes, not the promise. Paul doesn't start with the promise and then say who it's for. He starts with whom it's for. That's exactly what the Greek text does. So before we even get to the promise, Paul wants us to know that this promise is limited to certain people. He says it is for those who love God. Now, limitation is not necessarily a bad thing. We might think about it in terms of distinguishing or even discriminating. Now, the problem with that is, is that discrimination or discriminating is a bad word in our society. That's because it's really only used in a certain way in our day and age. It's used to describe unfairly and without reason treating some people differently from other people. And we think this is wrong, and we should. Just because a person looks a certain way, or comes from a certain place, should not mean that we treat them differently, especially since all people are created in the image of God. But to distinguish between people based on ability or relationship is a very different thing. So, for example, young people who are here today, I need to tell you, I am under no obligation to pay for your car insurance or to provide you a car or even to take you out to dinner with me when I go out. But I do do these things for the young people in my family. I distinguish because of the relationship. In the same way, if I were choosing a basketball team, if I were in a league in which you chose your own basketball team and you could choose whomever you want so that you could win games, I would not randomly select people from the phone book. I would pick James Harden. And I would have LeBron James. That's what I would do. I would pick them because of their skill. Now, in fact, 
Paul has been describing for us a difference between people throughout this entire book of Romans. There is a fundamental difference between people. It's not about race. It's not about nationality. It's not even about the difference between men and women. The fundamental difference, Paul says, is between those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and follow Him and those who do not. There are only two types of people, Paul says. We may think there are all sorts of people groups, but there are really only two people, the Bible tells us. Those who believe on Jesus and those who don't. Isn't this the basic point of the entire first half of Romans? We saw at the beginning of this book that everyone is alike in being under sin. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone needs God. And everyone is under the wrath of God because of sin. But God has made a way out of His wrath. He has made a way out of sin. We saw this in the end of Romans chapter 3, that God has manifested a righteousness that comes by faith in Christ to all who believe. Jesus provides a redemption that satisfies the wrath of God. But Paul is quick to say that there's no boasting in this difference. The central part of this difference is that we cannot boast because we didn't make any of the difference. It's the work of God Himself in Christ that makes all the difference. So now let's get back to the promise that's at hand. Who is the promise for? First, Paul tells us, it is for those who love God. Now this promise is very specific. It is for those who love God. It is for Christians. Now this makes sense. Because if there are only two types of people, Christians and non-Christians, how could all things work together for good for the people who do not love God, who do not believe, who are not redeemed, who are not forgiven, and who still have the wrath of God abiding over them? Paul has been telling us over and over again that the wrath of God abides over all who do not believe on Christ. So think about that. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, it will not be all right. It will not be good if you don't love God. Don't let anyone else tell you any differently. If you come to know and love God, the Bible tells us, you do this by believing in Jesus Christ. And it is the faith in Christ that makes all of the difference. So what we need to do right now is to stop and examine our hearts. You may find that this promise doesn't apply to you. But there's good news. It can. All you need to do is to believe in Jesus. And this promise is yours. Paul goes further on to describe the recipients of this promise as those who are called by God. This is Our text sharpening to whom the promise belongs. It's for those who were called. It is not a second set of people. It's not like the promise belongs to those who love God and to those who are called by God. No. It belongs to those who are both. The language is clear. 
It's describing the same people. Those who love God are those who are called by God. Those who are called by God are those who love God. Now, why would Paul give two descriptions? I think it's because the first description is subjective, and the second description is objective. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's put it this way. In the first description, those who love God, the emphasis is on us and our attitude toward God. Of course, it is the result of God's work, as we've seen all along, but it describes what we look like. It's subjective. The second description, those who are called by God, has as its emphasis God and His action entirely. He's doing the calling. Notice there's no description about what makes us worthy of the call. It just describes God doing the calling according to His purpose. Now think about that for a moment. You who are weary, you who are struggling, God is not looking for James Harden's. He's not looking for LeBron James's or Albert Einstein's or William Shakespeare's. He's not looking to call the best of the best. He calls not according to our ability, but according to his purpose. So, What does it mean then to speak about God's purpose? Well, we'll look more at this next week, but for now, we can say generally that God's purpose is to take the weak things of the world and to display in them His grace and His glory. When God called Israel out from all of the nations, it was not because they were the best of the best. As a matter of fact, God himself tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 7, it's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of the people. Did you hear that? Not only did not God not take Israel because they weren't the greatest, they were the least. God takes the weak things of the world and he shows himself strong. Paul understood this. That's why he called himself the least of the saints, the least of the apostles. That's why our Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 9 says, For he who is least among you is the one who is great. So who is the promise for? It's for those who love God and are called by God. So what is this promise then that comes to those who love God? What is the promise? The promise is not just that everything will be great. Now, there is an old poem by Robert Browning that gives this impression. I think far too often we have imbibed this as part of the Bible, even if we don't know the name of the author, Robert Browning. And there's the famous couplet that goes like this. God's in his heaven. All's right with the world. And we somehow think that's the Bible. But you know, it doesn't take a theological degree to see that all is not right with the world. Even for Christians. Christians experience suffering, loss, disease, poverty, persecution. In fact, Paul was just writing about this, the sufferings of this present time in this chapter. And he was reminding us that those sufferings are real But even though they are real, they do not compare to the glory 
that is coming. But now at the same time, what we see is that the promise is real. If all of life were just random, there would be no difference between those who love God and those who do not. We need to understand that what Paul is talking about here is not just that things happen, but that God works all things. All things are not working together with each other. All things are working together with the believer. Because God is at work. God is overruling all things for the good of those who love him. So what do we mean then by all things? Now, it would be easy for us to see how good things in life work out for good. Right? Oh, the Lord has sent me a wonderful spouse. Oh, you know what? I got into the perfect college. You won't believe it. I have the best job in the world. My health is strong. I feel fine all the time. Now, if we think in those terms, it's easy to see how that works for good. But does this promise apply even to trials, to suffering, even to sin? That's what we have to look at. Because the other perspective is easy. It's easy to see how good things work out for good. But how can bad things work out for good? Well, I think the first way that we can see this is that when things go wrong, it awakens us out of our routine. Most of our life is a routine, isn't it? We do the same things and we don't even really think about what we're doing. Have you ever found yourself on a Saturday in your car, you forgot where you were going and without knowing you were on your way to work just because you were in the car driving? Kids, have you ever had an occasion where you got up, rubbed the sleep out of your eyes, got some breakfast, packed your school bag, and realized it was a holiday and you didn't have to go to school? You just, you just did it because that's what you're used to doing. It's, it's our routine. We all have these. But when things go wrong, we get startled. We are awakened. We have to pay attention. We have to look at the things that we are forgetting. Let me give you an illustration. Someone, for example, may not feel well. They may be tired all the time. They may not have the appetite that they've had in the past. They're not eating as much. They don't enjoy food. But they ignore these symptoms. Perhaps they're like me. They don't like to go to the doctor. This will go away, right? I'll I'll get some energy and eventually I'll, I'll come around is what we say, right? But then what happens to this person if all of a sudden a great, sharp, shooting pain enters their body? Gets your attention, doesn't it? Then you make an appointment with the doctor. You go in to see the doctor and you say, Doctor, this pain is unbelievable. I don't know what to do. Something's got to be wrong. And the doctor, if he's a good doctor, asks you good probing questions for five or ten minutes. What have you been eating? How have you been exercising? How have you been sleeping? Etc., etc. And at the end of it, the doctor says, Why weren't you in here a month ago? Your sleep is off. You've lost weight. You're not eating properly. Why weren't you here? And what do you say? Well, Doc, I thought it would go away. But when that pain came, I made an appointment the next day because I knew something was wrong. I knew I had to pay attention. 
And in a sense, that's what bad things in our life are. They wake us up out of our doldrums. They get us out of our routine. They focus us. They have the effect of driving us back to God, of showing us that we need help, that we're not strong, that we can't do it on our own. Now, of course, this does not happen for unbelievers. They don't experience bad things and say, well, I guess I need to go back to God. I guess I need to break up my routine. Why? Because they have no love for God. They have no knowledge of God. They have no need of God. Another thing that bad things do for us is bad things compel us to realize the nature of this world. When bad things happen, it's a reminder that this world is not our home. This is especially important in America because we have a skewed view of the world. We think everything is supposed to be great all the time. And everything should work for our convenience. But the truth is, this world is not our home. In most of the world, for most of history, the world is a miserable place to live. The world is a lot less like our home and more like a not-so-great one-and-a-half-star Motel 6. You know, you can go and you can spend some time in a Motel 6, can't you? You can even get a good night's sleep. But you quickly realize... It's not your home. No one wakes up and says, I think I'm going to spend the next four months living in a Motel 6. No one says that. Why? Because you go to turn on the television and none of the channels are the same because it's a different cable provider. It's not home. You go into the shower to take a shower and there's no water pressure because guess what? It's not home. You say, I know, I'll have some coffee. And you go and you might, wait a minute, this isn't my coffee pot. This isn't my brand of coffee. I can't even have a decent cup of coffee in the morning. Motel 6 is something you put up with while you're passing through. It can be good or not so good. It can vary, but it's not a place you call home. When things are bad, it reminds us that this world is not our home. Things can be good or they can be not so good, but either way, we don't put down deep roots here. We're pointed more and more to the glory that is to come. Thirdly, God uses bad things to show us our weakness and our need. Now, this is especially true with sin. When we fall into sin, God uses that sin to show us that we need forgiveness. That we're not as good as we assume we are. Now, I want you to understand this. The Bible does not say that God causes sin for our good. The Bible says that God works all things, including sin, for our good. God is not the author of sin. He does not cause our sin, but He is so great, so majestic, so powerful that He can even take our sin and use it for our good. Do you want an example? How about the prodigal? What was the prodigal like before he went off and lived his life of rebellion? He knew some things about his father. He knew some things about himself, but there were a lot of things he didn't know. And when he went off into the far country and came to himself, realized his sin, and he came back, he realized so much more about who he was, how he should live, 
And he realized so much more about the Father. He got to experience the Father's grace. And he realized that the Father loved him, not because of the things he did for the Father, but because the Father chose to set his love upon him, no matter who he was. That the Father did not abandon him. That he forgave him and showed him grace. At the end, the prodigal knew much more about life himself and the Father because of the way God used his sin. The greatest thing to ever happen occurred in the context of sin. Of course, I'm speaking of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Without that, we would have no hope, no blessing, no forgiveness. But the Bible also makes clear that it happened as a result of the wickedness of men. God overruled their wickedness. And He used it for our good. There's another example from the Old Testament. The story of Joseph. Joseph's brothers conspired to kill him. And then, out of their great magnanimity, they said, we won't kill you, we'll just sell you into slavery. And they sent him off into slavery. And Joseph, God protected, and he brought him up through the ranks, as it were, to serve Potiphar, and then to be second behind Pharaoh in the throne. And God used the sin of Joseph's brothers, not only to save Joseph, but also to save all of Egypt, and all of Joseph's family, and all of the known world from the famine to come. It is not that God caused that sin, But God took that sin and he worked out good from it. Only God can do that. Now, it's hard for us to think about this because if we think about good things on the one hand and we think about bad things on the other, we tend to think they're going in opposite directions. And so how can things going in opposite directions lead to the same place? And there's an an old illustration that commentators use that I think is is helpful, at least I hope we can use it. I hope there's at least a few here among us that have ever worn a watch. Now, now I don't mean a smart watch. I don't mean a digital readout watch. I mean a real with the hands that go around the face watch. Have you ever had one of those, kids? Have you ever had a watch like that? Okay. Now, if you have a watch like that, imagine, do not do this at home. I do not want to be in trouble with your parents. Kids, imagine going home and popping off the back of your watch. If you did, you would see all kinds of wheels going in various directions at various speeds. Some go clockwise, some go counterclockwise. And all of these wheels move and they revolve around a main spring in the watch. And so some of the wheels going one way and some of the wheels going the other way make it possible for the hands of the watch to all go in the right direction. That's a picture of what life is like. Except for you can't pop the back off life. You can't see which wheels are going one way and which are going the other. We don't understand the secret counsels of God, but we have the promise of God. What's more important? Do you want to just know how things work or do you want God's promise? God's promise is that all things God works for good. Well, it's one thing to hear the promise. 
It's quite another thing to know that the promise is true. Paul obviously wants us to know that it's true. Again, if we look at the emphatic placement of words, Paul says, we know first. He's he's emphasizing that very first word, know. Now notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say feel. Now we feel that all things work together. No. This is important. Our grasp of the promise does not depend on our feelings. Now how could it? Because we've just been looking at how God uses bad things for the ultimate good of His children. And often when bad things happen to us, we feel the exact opposite from good. We feel dragged down. We feel discouraged. No, Paul says the call for us is to know this truth. To listen to God in His Word rather than to our feelings. But we must also know that this is a difficult thing to do. Because after all, we've just read two verses earlier in verse 26 that sometimes life is so hard we don't even know what to pray for. So how can we not know what to pray for and yet know that all things work for good? How does that work? This is an important Bible truth. And I can't put it any better than Martin Lloyd-Jones does. He says, a Christian can be certain about the ultimate thing and yet uncertain about immediate things. Do you hear that? You can have a certainty about the ultimate thing, your ultimate destination, your ultimate end, and yet still have uncertainty about the here and the now, what is happening, how God is working these things for your good. So what does that mean? It means you don't have to pretend that everything is fine right now. Or that you are certain how everything works into God's master plan. Sometimes I think we get caught up in that. Something happens to us and our immediate response is to try to figure out how this will work itself out 25 years from now. No, that's not how life works. You see, in fact it's actually helpful to distinguish between the ultimate and the present difficulties. Because otherwise we fall victim to our enemy. You see, Satan loves to use our present difficulties to attack our standing before God. He says to you, Are you sick? God must not love you. Are you persecuted? You must not have enough faith. Are you having a hard life? Well, then you must be lost forever in sin. Do not believe the lies of the enemy. You can know that this promise is true. And you can know that this promise is true both generally and specifically. Generally, we know that this promise is true from the testimony of Scripture. We know it from the record of how God dealt with Israel in the Old Testament. How time and time again, He sent nations to attack them, to convict them, to drive them back to Himself. We see it in the story of the saints who struggled and yet obtained the promise. Think about Jacob. Jacob who struggled and labored. Labored seven years for a wife. 
and then got the old switcheroo. And then he had to labor yet another seven years. He was taken advantage of. And yet, at the end of his life, he knew what it was like to know God. And he knew the truth of God's promise. Think about David. What a life of hardship he had with Saul following him, attacking him. And then as he comes into the kingdom, as we're reading now on Sunday mornings, the rebellion of Absalom comes before him. Yet the promise is still David's. What we see is we see God using bad things and even sin to shape his children. David sinned horribly. But God brought him to repentance. And the result is Psalm 51. God working all things for the good of his children. But you not only know that this promise is true generally in the Bible, it's one thing to say, yeah, I think this is how God works, but the more important question is, how does God work in my life? Knowing there's a promise out there is all well and good, but I want to know, is the promise mine? Does it come to me? And so don't stop at the general. Paul is not writing a theological textbook here. He's writing to real people. People just like you and just like me. And he's writing, so they and we will know the promise of God. How can you know that this promise is for you? Well, look and discover if you conform to the description given to whom it applies. The promise is to those who love God. Now, this is interesting because Paul does not say believers that the promise is to believers. And I think the reason for this is to show that this goes beyond just intellectual believing or assent. Because after all, James tells us that the devils believe and tremble. What Paul is talking about is a true belief, a true faith that changes who we are, that gives us hearts of flesh and makes us children of God. To show that true belief changes us. So you must understand this not in an intellectual manner. To love God requires more than reading about God, knowing about God, or debating others about God. Those who love God are engaged with their whole heart, their whole mind, their whole soul, and their whole strength. Now, do you know if God loves you? The scripture teaches us that there is no greater proof of God's love to us than our love to God. Because as John says in his first letter, in the fourth chapter, he says, we love him because he first loved us. And so if you wonder if God loves you, Look to yourself and see if you love God. If you love God, the Bible says, you can't love God unless He loved you first. So God loves you. The second thing that we need to explore with ourselves is that this description of the recipients of the promise are those who are called. So we need to ask ourselves, have I been called? Now, we need to stop for just a moment. Because our tendency 
The intellectualizing in the same way that we intellectualize love is to say, am I called? And then to try to peer into all time eternity, into the hidden counsels of God and find out if some way God has predestined me. But this is not what we are to do. There is a famous incident with the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon. He had the habit on Mondays of meeting with inquirers, people who were affected by the sermon. And a man came into his office on Monday and he said, Pastor, I don't, I don't know if I'm a Christian or if I could possibly be a Christian. And he said, why? And he said, because, Pastor, I don't know if I'm elect. How do I know if God chose me from before the foundation of the world? I don't know if I'm elect. And you know what Spurgeon said to him? Do you want to know if you're elect? I can tell you how you can know if you're elect. Are you ready? He said, yes, please, sir. Spurgeon said, choose Christ. Then you'll know you're elect. Because the only way you could choose Christ is if you're elect. Do not peer into the eternal counsels of God. Look at the here and now, how that eternal counsel is worked out. So if you want to know if you are called, ask yourself questions like this. Am I convicted of my sin? Does sin bother me? Do I hate sin? Do I want to be free from sin? Do I see sin as something that is horrible and puts a barrier between me and God? Or ask yourself this. Do I believe that the word of God, the Bible, is true? The Bible tells us that the natural man does not believe that. He thinks it's foolishness in 1 Corinthians 2. So if you believe the Bible is true, then that is a sign that you're called. Thirdly, ask yourself this question. Do I see Jesus as the Son of God? Because the Bible also tells us that the only way that you can say Jesus came in the flesh and is the Son of God is by the Spirit. Is if you have the Spirit of God. So if you believe Jesus is the Son of God, come in the flesh, then that's evidence that you're called. Finally, can you say, I am what I am only by the grace of God? That's a sign of someone Who's called? Because he realizes only by the call of God is there any hope. Well, we've looked at this great comforting promise of God. We've seen whom it's for. Those who love God and those who are called according to God's purpose. This great promise gives us hope in the midst of trials and suffering. Because it puts the immediate in an eternal perspective. We can know that the promise is true because God has shown us in His Word. Next week, we'll look at that purpose of God. The purpose that God has in using all things for our good. We'll see how God is the author of our salvation from the beginning to the end. All for the glory of His name. Amen. Let's pray.